0: This programme was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Now, my mai, mai, and welcome to Cult Chat, the podcast where we talk about coercion, control, and all things cultish. I'm Dr Caroline Ansley, I'm a medical doctor. As a child I lived at the Centrepoint community in Notorious Colton, New Zealand and now I run a website that advocates for the former children of the community.
1: I'm Liz Gregory and I run the Gloryvale Leavers Support Trust and I'm privileged to walk alongside people after leaving this group as they embark on their new lives. And I'm Lindy Jacob.
2: I'm a former member of the Exclusive Brethren, and I'm part of the Olive Leaf Network, a new
0: initiative in Aotearoa to support levers of high demand religious groups. Come with us as we unpack the cult playbook. We'll be talking to experts and levers of coercively controlling groups, and we will call for Kiwis to
1: cult proof their lives. Come with us as we traverse the cultiverse.
2: A warning this podcast contains references to subjects and discussions which may be difficult for some people to hear. Please take care of yourselves and your whānau when listening.
0: Welcome back to Cult Chat. It's so great to be here with my girls. (laughs) Uh, Liz and Lindy in the studio with, at Plains FM. It's so lovely to be together. That's a unique for us. We've gathered together. Today we're talking about children growing up in high control groups. This is the third of four episodes that we're having right now, a mini-series on kids and cults. Um, in our last two episodes, Liz interviewed uh, Victory and Hopeful Disciple. Today we're going to explore some of the themes that um, rolled out in those two episodes, which was uh, one interview that was just two episodes cut in half, Um, today's episode will definitely contain some really rich fodder for thought, Mm. um, and I'd highly recommend for those of you who are are starting today in this episode, maybe stop now, go back, and listen to Hopeful and Victory, because we're going to be talking about them a lot in today's interview, so if you haven't listened to it, it won't make a lot of sense, Um, so that's how you get the most out of it. Um, Liz, you uh, know these two wonderful people well and you yes. interviewed them, um, How? tell me a little bit about how you know them and how you're feeling about the interview.
1: Oh, great. Look, Hopeful and Victory came out of Gloryvale a couple of years ago. And so we always watch, um, often sometimes from the sidelines, as people begin their out journeys and we track along and see, see how things are going. And yeah, they were a fascinating couple. And I'd have to say they've come out of Gloryvale with a real determination to sort through the mental mess. And so that's meant reflecting on, you know, the things they think and do. And that's a massive job. Um, They have seven children and they've come from this reclusive Gloria Vale group and so the impact on them is quite enormous because they're actually second generation members Mm -hmm. and I'm going to flick to Lindy in a moment and just ask her to tell us a little bit about um, second generation members and uh, where the research is going with that. But I just wanted to say that um, yeah, Hope and Victory have really... um, gone at their, at their mental mess like a full-time job. Um, it's involved books, counselling, you know, therapy, um, just wise people, heaps and heaps of conversations with leavers, survivors from their own groups, survivors mm. from other groups. It has been a spectacular to watch them and the amount of material they can process through in their minds. And I think you can see that in the interview. It
0: so comes across. I mean, like, Mm. every second sentence is a wisdom wisdom
1: pearl that is just dropped. Mm. It's like... Mm. How many note pages did you take? You I know? took,
0: like, five pages of notes. I had to quote them repeatedly.
1: I am the same. They will ring up and they'll just be, like, spouting, like, golden sentences. Oh, hold there. I'll say, do you mind if I, I record this and I capture this and I've got, you know, hopeful said. <laughs> it's a bit like, you know, my, my diary. Yeah, victory I'm, said. I'm really grateful to them because, I mean, it, it is
2: a it is a wee bit like we kind of put them on the table mm-hmm. and, and we use them as a case study, right? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. Which, which is, uh, yeah, it's, it's a very vulnerable place to be in because it's very personal stories. But very. why, I guess what we, where we're trying to go with our conversation now is to say that while this might have been true for Victory and Hopeful as two individuals who both came from a very particular culty group, mm-hmm. what we want to draw out and... Um, show with our viewers and listeners is that the very things they experienced are repeated time and time again in so many other groups. It's these very, very clear patterns and dynamics Mm -hmm. that um, Hopeful and Victory are just, they're just like one case study, but you can get, you can find the exact same type of dynamics and Mm -hmm. impact with um, children and so many other high-demand groups. And that's what I think is so shocking. Mm -hmm. That's what...
0: yeah it's it's shocking so, so tell us about the whole first generation, second generation, multi generation difference.
2: Yeah that, that is a really important difference so in the, in the field of cultic studies these are terms that are used to um, make it clear a first generation person is somebody who has usually become an adult recruit and has joined a group as an adult but they've got like a pre-cult life and identity and relationships and so for them recovery after leaving a culty group looks quite different because even though there might be a huge period of disruption they can there is a pre-cult identity and relationships mm-hmm. and um, education and understanding of the world that they can return to, whereas mm-hmm. if you are a second generation, that means you have been born and raised in the group mm-hmm. um, by somebody else who was a first generation person and so your um, Hopeful and Victory talk about that, they um, they talked at one point about how they believed that their parents um, they, were they brought some humanity. more balance and a bit mm-hmm. more Chilled about the intensity of the cultic rules and that kind of thing because they had a previous
0: mm-hmm.
2: worldview and life experience to kind of balance with it. Whereas they said that it was almost them as people, the first generation, sorry, the second generation, born and raised in this group, that were like the zealots mm-hmm. because that was all they knew. Yes. And whereas, and there's another term um, which I believe was coined by Jill, Doctor Jill Mitten, who is a former Exclusive Brethren member who went on to um, complete her professional doctorate in psychotherapy in Middlesex University I think just in 2017 Um, and I believe she kind of formally researched this category of people called MGAs or um, multiple generation um, adults and they just have all those issues compounded because not only are their parents zealots who only know this world but so also are their grandparents and sometimes even their great-great-grandparents. And so There's culturally... No for them to see
0: the world any other way from no, what they've everybody been...
2: everybody around yeah. you mm-hmm. has been shaped by this intense environment. Mm-hmm. Every single person in, in your world and in your family. So, yeah, they're really... Um, Really key differences, and I actually just happened to pick up a magazine today from ICSA, which is the International Cultic Studies Association, um, a really respected and reputable international organisation that fosters all sorts of research around in the area of cultic studies and sort of survivor support and that kind of thing. And I just picked up this wee magazine, um, ICSA today, which came from them, and it's got an article, a big article about second generation and multiple generation members, and it—I um, mean, it says it. It's by a woman called Celia... Cynthia Matthews. Sorry, Cynthia Matthews. And she says, I mean, this is just one paragraph. It's a great article. I won't go into it all, but she says, Based on research, overall, SGA and MGA, former cult members, tend to experience more abuse than first-generation members. They tend to experience more sexual, physical, and emotional abuse and more neglect mm-hmm. than those who join later in life. They tend to have more difficulty with relationships due to early childhood attachment disruption... Mm-hmm. And trauma. They lack education and job marketable skills because of their cult upbringing mm. and reliance on cult education. They lack decision making skills and ability to think for themselves. Mm. Difficulty establishing boundaries. It just goes on and on and on. And these are the things we're going to talk about now. Mm. And, and hopefully, and Victory just mm, gave us really example after example mm. of exactly this kind of thing. So, what we're trying to say is first generation people have got a different set slightly different set of things to deal with than SGA's and MGA's, Mm. and that's what we're talking about, kids and cults. How does it impact you? What Mm -hmm. does it mean for those who are supporting And what
0: I'd like to say, because I've been talking to uh, former children, second generation, former children of Centrepoint, is that this idea of this identity idea Mm -hmm. of second generation, I have not really heard that mentioned really and i think it's because the the idea is so new you know the idea of of having a particular and different experience um and a different uh, set of challenges to navigate when you come out is is still really it's like on the edge of research, and research, international research, like that's you say right. Jill Mitton's work was only 2017. I just recently read Steve Hassan's book, which is uh, combating Cult mind control, which is a, quite an early book that's been reproduced over and over again. And everyone says it's the one of the books that uh, is the most influential, one of them. And and I read it going, where's the children? Mm. It's all about recruiting, recruiting, mm. recruiting. Where's the kids in this book? And it barely
1: mentions. Do you I, think that's a feature of we're getting to a point where some of these groups that have been around 30 and 40 years are finally having their day of exposure. Mm. And so, of course, they weren't writing in the 80s about it because people were joining these groups in the late 60s for many of them. Or 70s. And 70s. And so they hadn't had time to have their children and their children to grow up and have and their do children. The res- and and then, then do those re- children to leave, to leave and do the research. And be ready to speak up. Yeah. Okay, so you're just mm. adding years on now. Yes,
0: and one of one of the, the women who most significantly influenced me um, from Centrepoint, who did a lot of work in this area, she once said you know, that, that the children need... 30 or 40 years. Wow. Well, that's true. I know that's true years. of child
2: abuse too, that it, it, apparently it takes like 30 to 40 years
0: for people to speak up about child mm-hmm. abuse. Mm-hmm. Well, that, so that's, that's kind of, why it's the 2020s mm-hmm. when this stuff is starting to become seen. Wow. And that's why mm-hmm. we're starting to actually have names. And you can say, this is
1: my experience.
0: To describe these dynamics. Yep. Mm, yep. Absolutely. Yeah, and I've
1: been um, thinking a lot about it. And I think um, probably worth noting in this interview with Hopeful and Victory, um, we have a very casual relationship. We have a lot of laughs together. We cry together as well. Um, But we do have a relationship of intense trust. There are times where there are phone calls that have gone on for four hours while they've you know, chewed the cud over things, and, and my husband's often involved in these as well. And so, yeah, we do have that relationship. So you can see there's an ease in which um, the interviewing goes ahead. And some people might think, "Oh gosh, she was insensitive," or she was having a laugh over something that's not funny. But we um, we, we, your deep, your friends. we we're friends. We're friends, and um, I'm always checking in, Uh, you know after interviews like this, there's a cost to people for speaking up and telling their story I'm in touch that next day, how are you feeling, has it impacted you, what are some of the things you're thinking about, are you okay Mm -hmm. Um, and I'll always check in with people before they do interviews, are you in a state at the moment that you feel like you can go ahead and talk about these things. It does disrupt your emotional equilibrium for a period of time after talking like that. Sure. Mm-hmm. But um, what I got in response from them, um, one said, um, yeah, whew, yeah, yeah, it impacted me through through the night, sort of in my, in my dreams and my thinking. And then the other partner said, oh, that was really excellent. I'm oh, so great. That was great. That really, we talked through some stuff that has really helped solidify some of mm. my ideas. Mm. And so that's, that's what you hope to do, by yeah. encouraging people to speak up, we, we get the benefit of it. We can share that with our listeners, but actually, they get benefit. Mm-hmm. It's like therapy.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, that's good. It's so yeah. wonderful to be heard, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so let's um, start. To, we're just gonna chuck around some of the things we thought. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What stood out to you? Where do you want to start? Oh, where do I want to start? Oh, let's talk about um, developmental. Regression and delay.
1: She's into the big stuff, straight up.
0: All right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. great. That was um, that was something that really came out um, as the two of them both talked about how they um, they kind of seem to get sort of stuck. They, you know, um, at the end, right at the end, they pulled out Erikson's um, eight <laughs> stages of development, um, which you know. Uh, uh, I don't want to kind of go into depth about that, but the idea being that we have jobs to do as we progress through life and we have a lot of jobs to do in the first 20 years of life. Um... And uh, it's to 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 pull I, the way I simply consider it as um, a doctor and as a parent is to pull away from our attachment, from being biologically um, attached to our mother, to being free and in the world, because um, that's how we start life in uterus, right? Mm. Um, and to slowly move away. But but they're not allowed to do that in a cult, mm. are they? They have to be kept in, and they have to be kept from. Um, uh, individuating from finding their own way, from finding their own uh, sense of who they are, mm-hmm. from a ex- decision, exp- yeah, mm-hmm. from exploring, mm-hmm. from um, and yeah, well,
2: I just found it so distressing. Uh, to be honest with you, I cried twice listening to that interview. It was just like, just this grief came up for me listening to what it must be like to be a child. Um, Growing up there, and to have that level of like he t- when he um, I think it was hopeful spoke at one point about realizing as he looked at the stages of development that he said that in Gloria Vale we systematically set oh. about trying to basically break mm. every level of those development like yeah, yeah, learning yeah. yeah
0: learning how to um, can you remember some of the examples? yeah yeah so I uh, no but I can remember the stages yeah might, might prompt yeah. you like in infancy can I trust the world yeah. Yeah, yeah. I definitely don't want them to Oh, that. I
2: just, when he said, <laughs> when he described holding his newborn baby. Oh, I know. And, and, and that he looked at his baby and then he, and the first <sighs> yeah, thought in his head yes. was, I'm, I'm going gonna to ha- I'm gonna have to cut you off. No, it was One about day. shunning. Yes. It was about, I'm going to have to cut you off if you, like, basically yep. ever step out of line. Yep. Yep. Yes. But that was his first thought. And that, that just it. broke me to hear that because there was obviously this immediate fatherly instinct of, this is my baby that I'm holding. But then it was like, so there was that natural instinct to love and to care, but there was this immediate repression of it. Um, Yeah, there was this immediate repression of it, uh, like you can't do this, Mm. you can't attach to this child, you can't fully give yourself to unconditionally love it because if it ever steps out of
1: line, you have to Mm. cut that off. And interestingly, it also puts pressure on you as a parent to look like you've brought up this perfect child. And so you will go to extreme ends with your discipline to to, to get them in line because it reflects badly on you as a parent Mm. if they do leave. Mm-hmm. And you and so, you, don't,
2: you don't want to lose your child. So, of no. course, if the solution to not losing your child is to force them to be a good little boy or girl and have their will broken... Because to lose
1: the child is what? Fatal. Death. Mm-hmm. Well, well spiritual it is. It's death. a form, it's a form it, of social death. And death. Yeah. I think the interesting thing about the developmental delay concept, another Glorivale... Um, It wasn't even a Glorival lever. It's someone who left way back in Springbank, but they were involved there in the first sort of seven to ten years. They came in 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 their 20s. They've actually written a reflective piece. It's on our website under Reflections. Um, And it was called We Didn't Set Out to Build a Sect, if anyone wants to look that up. But it's thoughts from this man sort of 40 years later or 30 years later reflecting on the time. And the most powerful part of it is he speaks about the infantilizing effect. Mm. I came in in my early twenties. You know, married. You know, I was. I was. I, I'd, I'd worked through my developmental stages. I was a man. It's I come autonomous. into this group, and I became infantilized. And you know what's so fascinating is that has been passed around <laughs> the underworld, <laughs> and uh, lots of leavers have read it, and I have had a lot of men actually just coming and having conversations about it, like. So wow! Can you give us some descriptions of that? Are you talking yes. about learning to hand over your autonomy, hand over your decision-making? It's all of that. So all the things that you came to, you came as an, as an adult, and then you go and went into a group like Glorival, and you became a child again. Yeah. You, you were allowed to make decisions. If you think about it in Ericsson
0: stages, that, that stage is stage two, autonomy versus shame. You were treated like You're a child. At, at age one to, mm-hmm. to two, you start to venture out into the world and try to figure out... Um, you know, how to explore and how to express your interests. Like, I'll reach for that doll because yep. I like dolls. Had or I'll clipped. pull a book from a shelf because I like looking at pictures. You know, like, that's something a parent allows you to do. But we don't want people to show autonomy in cults. Nope. We don't want them their own individual idea of uh, who they are and what they naturally and move towards right.
1: and naturally are interested What they might want to do, that we you might have your own will or, or interest. No, yep. that no, gets broken, even in show- an adult so then the next generation are breaking the will of the child by three. Mm-hmm. The adult that enters and recruits, they have their wings clipped by the group. Absolutely. So we call it the infantilising effect. And you know what? It has the same sort of impact on mm-hmm. people versus the, as the developmental delay mm-hmm. does for the younger ones. Mm-hmm. And I found it's the men coming and saying, oh, that was so powerful. The most incredible thing in that thing he wrote was about the inf-, And I said, wait there was the infantilising, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yes, and I, I can give you numbers of them. Right. And the men are going, that's me. Like, what an amazing thing to say. That's me. I feel like I'm that guy now, and I'm out here with children and married, and I'm supposed to be living this really mature life, but I feel like the infant, and I'm just entering my teenage life. Yes, yes. And I want to go back and experience some things. And I, Yes, I, I, yes. Well, I see that a lot with people who leave the
2: exclusive brethren, is that no matter whether they're in there. Yeah, twenties, thirties, forties, fifties, sixties. It's almost like a delayed adolescence happens. Mm -hmm. And even though I left at twenty, I felt that I experienced it too. Because you've come from this environment where all your decisions have been made for you mm-hmm. and your opportunities have been so limited and your, um, yeah, your your opportunities for autonomy and choice have been so limited. And so then when you come out, even if you're an adult, you're, you're doing things that in the rest of the world, 15 and 16 year olds are doing, you know, like you're, yeah. or, or 18 year olds you are doing, you're, you're learning how to rent for the first time in your life or you're learning how to go and apply for jobs in, in the wider world you have
1: no idea how to yeah. hold, or you're learning how to date. Or spend um, money. And you, you, you're thinking, as a 15-, 16-year-old, what are you thinking about hobbies?
2: Yeah. Right, Guns, then, yeah,
1: nice clothes, yeah, yeah. just things. And yet, yeah, if you're a 40-year-old and you come out with seven kids like yeah. these guys, like, <laughs> yeah. well, whew, a yeah. nice car. How many 18-, 19-year-olds that go and buy these fantastic nice new trucks and we're sitting there yeah. going, we've never bought a new Vehicle in our lives, you know, yeah. like wow, mm. yeah. That.
0: So there's all these, there's all these things that you have to do in your adolescence
1: that mm. these groups don't
0: let you do. That's right, yeah. and they stu- they get you stuck at on purpose. Um, yep. They get you stuck at that. Is it okay to be me? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The answer is no. It's not mm-hmm. okay to be you. Is it okay for me to do and move and act in the world? No, no, no. So you can't move to that stage. Can I make it in the world of people and things? Definitely not. Oh. You know. So that that's the, um, the world seven, is bad even. <laughs> that's the seven to ten age development. Adolescent period. Who am I? Who can I be? No, no, we don't want you to explore that. So you can't go into that one. In young adulthood, can I unite myself with another person? Definitely not. No, not unless I say so. No it's time for you marriage. Can't. Form connection with <laughs> you can 't trust people because that mm. came out in the in the conversation with Vi and Hope this idea of uh, no one's safe around me yeah. so you absolutely cannot unite with another person,
1: you cannot form bonds, no. you cannot mm. form connections beyond they, your
0: mother um, yeah, relationship They
1: spoke about that and in there and we 've had lengthy conversations with them about. Even that that marriage relationship, and I remember the Sunday program that John Campbell did a a, a year or two ago, and they spoke on that as well. So that'll be in our show notes. Yeah, really powerful. And Hopewell's brother, Faithful Disciple, spoke on it as well. There were some conversations around consent and various other issues. But yeah, right there, there were those discussions in more detail about the marriage relationship and Mm. the inability to effectively communicate. You might be worried someone's going to snitch on you or tell on you because your loyalty is to the group first. Mm. How destructive of a marriage relationship. Mm. And yet when they were in there, they just kind of thought that was normal. So when you try and suggest to them, when they're still in there, that your family and marriage relationship has probably been impacted in a bad way by the group, they're really insulted. Like, and how how do you politely tell someone who's still in there The depth of harm and impact this group is having on them. When it's all they've ever known, they've not known anything else and they think you're out to destroy them. Mm. Yeah, so Hope and Victory come out and then they've got this incredible clarity they can now express. And what do they have to do? What do they have to do? Number one, start to build trust Mm. with each other. Mm. As a married couple with seven children and then start to build trust with each of their children. Can you see how big a job that Mm. is?
0: But you know what, and build a sense of autonomy and they be, wouldn't yeah,
1: yeah. But they wouldn't swap it for the world mm. they it's worth it
2: another really interesting thing just on the topic of um, parenting that is really interesting to hear I think it was hopeful share about was um, his, his grieving and his regret that because um, you know unlike someone like me who left a group at, at 20 and I wasn't a parent, he, he reflected that he had yeah been a parent in ways in there that were harmful and I think in his teaching role as well and he was so aware of damage that he believed he had caused to his own children as well as to other children and to hear him reflect on on the regret and the grieving that he had and I've, um, I've heard other adults reflect on that too, both um, first generation as well as Second generation people—that—that's a very painful b- burden,
0: burden to carry. But, um, I find that interesting because, yeah, he was frankly open and honest yeah. about the harm he caused, mm-hmm. and he didn't excuse. He said, "I said about systematically breaking the will of my oh. child. It happened to me." Mm. Mm. Um, yeah. And he talked about how the the first generation he thought bring some heart, oh, what do they say, heart, humanity yeah. with mm-hmm. them, mm-hmm. but we grew up thinking that. Everything was normal. We didn't even grow up with a conscience. And what my parents did unwillingly to me as a child, the harsh mm, punishment, mm, mm. I did willingly with yeah. all mm, of my heart. Mm, mm, mm. And, and that, he was that, talking about physical spanking yes, and all that. Type yes. Of thing. And like, mm. I have to say, you know, that really melts my heart. He's so vulnerable there. Yeah. And, but I think about still, um, 20, 30 years later, how few of the center point. Uh, first generation adults have made it right and said that yeah. said that basic stuff. Yeah. You know, that basic stuff. I did all these wrong things, yeah. and I am excruciatingly sad and sorry for that, yeah. and I have deep remorse. You know, like that. he just hey, he just rolled out there's just an, like an apology.
1: That. Did you believe yeah. it? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. No, que- no question of gosh, it. was that a sincere? No.
0: So is there something
1: different there?
0: And mm. you know, he's he was the he's second honest. generation utterly wedded um, to the ethos and the ideology because it's all they know, mm-hmm. but in a different way to the first generation. Because I'm comparing here, I'm comparing a second generation response to yeah. being a perpetrator mm-hmm. to a first generation at centre point's response well, to Well, maybe, a you know what,
2: one thing that immediately springs to my mind, Cass, is that the first generation chose it Mm. and so maybe there's subconsciously there's this desire to protect this thing that they chose whereas if you're if you're a second generation or multi-generation you you can honestly go i I didn't know different in Mm. the first place right i
1: think so i think you'll Mm. find there's an that definite intense feelings of guilt from some first generation and instead of coming out upright and just saying i'm really sorry at the harm it's caused they actually just go they I arm cannot hammer up. I cannot mm. admit this because mm. if I do that, it will break me yeah, and I will lose everything. It, because it, it's, it, it means admitting that I chose yeah. this, yeah. and mm-hmm. I've got That's children right. still here. And I think my children say they're happy. And if mm. I leave, I lose mm-hmm. them and I ruin their life. I think I'll just stay and be grandma. Exactly. Mm, yeah. And they're
0: not just losing something they chose. They're losing the utopia. The, the dream. dream. Yeah. The that, dream they that they chose. Yes. Mm. Yes. That, but it's not just a, a, a thing they chose. It's mm. literally a, a, a paradise, mm. a, a solution to the world's mm, problems. Your world view. You know, like, yep. it, 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 and, after and that's all, right.
1: That's a huge, huge thing to let go of. After mm. all, the Lord is coming back t- mm-hmm. tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So why would I bother leaving today? I think mm. there's all of that, so should we bring it back into the yeah. kids and and stuff? Oh, and I, okay. yeah,
2: A, another thing that I did just about made me cry was just such compassion and oh, my heart just broke thinking of those kids. Was they're just they're talking about the stuttering and the bedwetting oh, mm, and the shame. physical impact um, of various things happening. Oh. To, and to, the thing that that killed me was how these physical things that, you know, kids deal with and they're often an indicator of some something else going on, some forms of stress or distress, abuse, distress, yeah. but that each in both of those situations, that how they described it was that those things, bedwetting and stuttering, were then understood by fellow yeah. residents in categories of being sinful... sinful. Or bad, bad or shameful mm-hmm. rather than going, there is a child here mm-hmm. who's got a problem and that really upset me, even like the stuttering, and I guess it got to me as well because I remember that somebody dear to me in, in the exclusive bread in once was, um, I knew it was really suffering with OCD, oh. and, the, mm-hmm. and went to the priest because they didn't know where else to go to for help, and the priest um, said, you need to read your Bible more oh. and like this person actually couldn't even read because it was impacting even how they took in information mm-hmm. And, you know, just the cruelty of lack of education for some of these people who are in leadership positions mm-hmm. to interpret okay. genuine mental and psychological stress and disorders, mm-hmm. to interpret them in categories of sin, sin and failure and shame It's just profoundly
0: abusive. It is. Yeah, and
2: Why just so I?
0: upsetting. It yeah, d- this just reminds me of this quote from the Guru Papers. It's the book I'm reading right now. It says that when loyalty, duty and obedience are valued in and of themselves, they become the rationale for using others without concern for their well-being. So there's a lack of well-being or caring there. Yeah. We call this ideological uncaringness. For mm. Protecting the ideologies that justify the hierarchy takes precedence over the people. That's how I was following order excuses, exemplifies valuing, obedience over consequences to people. So it's all about following the rules.
1: The people at the heart don't really matter. And these kids feel it from from a young age. Yes, and Feel what, th- feeling you know, the worthlessness, the lack right. of care, the neglect, the disconnection from their family, young. And so, when I was a school teacher and doing my training, you got taught about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and it's this concept of a triangle, and it's the idea of having a pyramid, e- a pyramid even mm. a pyramid, and it's got these concepts that stack up on top of each other. If you don't have your basic needs met, you can you bet your bottom dollar. You're not going to get a well balanced, you know, individual at the top.
0: Well, you can't you can't look to get those next level up, the next tier that's right. of the pyramid uh, addressed until you just get stuck there. You just get like, stuck. If you're cold and you're hungry, you're never going to try and yeah. you know like get an education,
1: are you? So you're looking for your physiological needs, and that's yep. your first layer, and that's your biological. And your you need food, you need good shelter, you need your drink, you know, your warmth, all of those. And sleep is, comes under that category. Mm. And so if there are disruptions in there, your next layer up is where you get about the safety need. You, you want to experience order in your world, You've got some predictability and control. So this is about good routines and loving parents with boundaries. These give you feelings of safety needs. Then you come up and have your love and belonging needs, so your um, ability to um, connect in a good emotional way, perhaps to your parents or, or to another healthy group. Then you're coming on... And looking at esteem needs. Now, we're getting up to parts of the triangle here where even a word like self-esteem is a sin in glory Vale. Well. So it's mm-hmm. not about self. It's about denying self. So already they're going to be criticizing me for talking about this hierarchy of needs because it's such a selfish thing to do. Well, I would say no. If you have a Christian worldview, you actually believe in something called a mago day made in the image of God. He created it was good, yes, we have a sin disruption that doesn 't give you as a harmful group permission to go and pour out the conditions that create such harm, Mm. and then you call it sin. That is a despicable use of of the scripture and the understanding of humanity. And then, so you're looking at these esteem needs about your self-worth. We're not quite there yet. Your accomplishment and your respect. Wow, these are just issues that, yeah. And then at the top is your self-actualization needs. Okay, Mm. You're looking at your potential, your self-fulfillment, your seeking of personal growth, your purpose. purpose. These are just things you're not even allowed to think of. Yeah,
0: so victory and hope for where they were talking about even some of the stuff right down the bottom right. as being sinful. That's right. You That's know, right. so
2: it's like having needs. Like like hunger. I just hunger. found that a fascinating oh, and very painful time. again conversation about you know, as a young woman just being hungry, um and, and yet that even to be hungry was seen as was interpreted That's in um, categories of morality. Mm-hmm. It was seen as being greedy. To eat that you know, was like greedy. Oh, if you that eat. was amazing. They, there must be a huge amount of eating disorders and um, disordered eating.
1: There are. There is. Oh, and it's so painful. Sad. Again, ca- undiagnosed. Yeah, and obviously, as people come on particular journeys, they begin to recognise. And
2: it. how spiritually abusive to name it. Yeah, in categories of sinful or not, when actually it's mm. yeah. And, and you and look at a lot of high demand.
0: Of- Denial of, yeah, being tired. Mm, yeah, and, and that, to me, I have to say, when I heard them talking about the not, not recognising mm. feeling hungry or tired or any of these other basic physiological responses mm. to having a body mm. um, uh, and being a human, <sighs> um, I just thought well, the, 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 um, their clock or their biological rhythm or, or whatever you call that, the, the thing that, that sets your future pathway as, as, a, as a physical creature mm. is being utterly undermined. And I, I'm thinking for the lifespan. You know, I'm thinking, yes. I'm thinking of a 50-year-old who's left a cult that they grew up in when they turn up to my practice and <laughs> they mm. say to me, I've been having some
1: chest pain. Can they say that? Can they say I've been having some tests? Hey, it's very unlikely <laughs> they're going to turn up to your practice well, unless they've got some support people behind them, encouraging them that they are worth it. Because Sam Jahara says, and she's someone we're going to look at having on our program, mm-hmm. she's a psychotherapist. She said, a child who grows up in a cult learns to have no needs. Wow. Exactly. And so the adult coming out of a cult doesn't recognise that as something so, worth exactly, going to. Because exactly. So that person doesn't go to doesn't a doctor. Doesn't go to the doctor. That person dies doesn't from a heart get attack. Early. That person believes something, though, that you wouldn't believe. And this is said in Gloria about. It's just a body.
0: Yeah. And it's the, God's will that I die early from a heart attack.
1: The dismissal of your body. And do you know how bad that doctrine permeates through issues like sex abuse? It's mm. just a body. Don't worry. So you'll so get another one. Oh my gosh! Mm. So you'll the disassociation,
2: not Ugh. only not only mental disassociation, but
0: complete physical disassociation, yeah, yeah. And, and, and repression and denial of that—that's very I, distressing. Can I um, draw, remind you of a story I told you earlier in the day about a patient I had once um, years ago, who came to me uh, complaining of um, abdominal pain. This was a, a woman in under twenty. Uh, abdominal pain and weight gain, and that evening she delivered a baby. She was 32 weeks pregnant, and she had no awareness or knowledge that she was in labour. And I have never forgotten that uh, no. profound disconnection between wow. the body and the mind, that inability, you know, like there's some something very serious has gone on there to, to break that, like... To have never learnt... How to listen to your body. Yeah, how to listen to your body. And and what Hopeful mm. and Victory did a wonderful job of doing is describing the process that gets a child from the earliest mm. um, uh, self-awareness or, or consciousness to start to kind of make the, the self-denying decisions. And an adult who decides, I'm going to fast or I'm mm. going to... Mm. Um, uh, put my children first and not feed myself, feed my kids first, or whatever the self-denial takes, whether it's spiritual or practical, that's very different from mm-hmm. uh, from uh, as, a, as a sort of a sound um, already developed, knowing your needs, knowing and recognising what your body wants and needs. It's profoundly different from mm-hmm. someone who has yet to learn that. There's, the mm-hmm. framework is not in place no. for... Um, uh, receiving the messages that your brain is giving you Mm -hmm. about the physiology inside that is necessary
1: for survival. The the survival concept, yes. You see, we do everything we can to prolong our lives because we see this life as a good thing even though it can pour out heartbreak on us. People go to extreme lengths to extend their life. People inside high control groups, from all the research I've done, look at ways to end their life earlier and there is very real, I mean Actually, um, Mission of Malice, Erica Bornman. I brought it up in the interview. Heaps! And there's this whole passage in there about she wanted to die. This is when she's in the group and she would ideate on how she would die. And then after she leaves, um, perhaps it's then that she does more thinking about this. She thinks, well, I can't do this and this because it's bad if I kill myself. You know, there's a lot of doctrine often around killing and I'll go to hell and suicide concepts. But the way to do it is to make sure I get self-murdered. How could I get myself self-murdered, you know? And then she just talks about it quite lightly and says, oh, well, I put my plans of self-murder on the shelf for a while. I'll just see if I can get through a bit how longer. How is self-murder different from suicide? Um, well, the idea is that you put yourself in a position where something bad will happen to you. So what you go out walking car? on a da- on a dark night. It's a big storm. You, uh, no, or, yeah, and maybe you go missing and you get cold oh, and hypothermia. And I know people in Gloravale that told me they had all that and they had it planned in their head how they might do these self-murder Oh, how a stress. Yeah, and so,
2: so they're, they're trying well, to cognitively find a way
1: around to suicide end to their, end their life, life earlier, and so not going to doctors and being oh, told, mm, yeah. I, I mean, I know neglect I know well. women who spoke about they were told not to have children, and they in a place like rural, you going to have a choice there's an expectation, and you get pregnant again, and I, I know numbers of women who prayed to die during childbirth. Mm. So you're oh, talking about so a distressing because s- it's just a body. You're going to heaven, and you're denying yourself, and that's how distressing their lives. Some of these mm-hmm. people's lives are. That is distressing, and these thinking patterns begin in childhood when you're a kid in a cult. Those adults aren't thinking that stuff mm. from nowhere.
2: Yeah, 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 and that poem, actually, I wrote down a line, line from the poem that Victoria shared it. And because one of the lines was, well, she was talking about work being the only safe thing I know. But she said, I hope I die soon because I have already been destroyed. Oh my gosh. That's just a devastating picture of how desperate some of these people are getting and how completely trapped they feel, mm. where they feel that suicide is the only, or self-murder, mm. is the only way to get rid of the pain. But but that, how she sort of described that she'd already been destroyed, sort of living a... Ooh, this is this is a this is a heavy topic. This is, really take heavy. a drink that of water if you need. Take a deep
1: breath. And you know we keep flicking from the child, and then we're talking about mm. kids and cults. But we keep talking about the adult experience, and mm. guess why? Mm. <laughs> they are they're linked because they've been kids and cults. <sighs> that's he, right. I think it
2: was Victory. No, Hopeful said at one point. He said very clearly. He said, "You come out of it broken," oh. and and I thought, yeah, that's exactly. Yeah, there's a number of people who I see from a number of other groups, and they come out of these groups broken, especially if they've been born and raised. Mm. Mm. Yeah, And it rings
0: true of some of my own experience. Well, yeah. One of the themes that came through strongly for me in the conversation was their relationship with the children in their lives. Like mm. this couple in particular have a, a, a real care and concern for children outside of their own family. Yes. And I really uh, mm, enjoyed the wrong word, but I was fascinated by Victory's description of her slow awakening as in her role as a as a as a teacher mm-hmm. and then also after I think it was Um, Hopeful was talking more when he came out and looking at parenting and um, having to face his children's distress um, (laughs) later on. And it just really kind of reminded me of -hmm. of myself, I think I mentioned it before, of how kind of pivotal my uh, more recent, you know, in the last 10 years, waking up to some of my own history of trauma was in my relationship with my children, Mm -hmm. you know, and how distressing it is to... Have this innocent, fresh, new creature um, who's, who's got who's got no history. Your child, um, hopefully, uh, if they're out of a cult by then, having to um, n- navigate your trauma mm-hmm. that, that they um, are triggering. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and uh, yeah, that's that's kind of it. Sounds. I mean, I. I obviously I don't know this couple, but it sounded like they're absolutely on that journey Mm. of working out, you Mm. know, what is their stuff and what is their children's stuff. And quite a lot of it's their stuff, right? That's right. Um, I I was amazed to hear that they had seven children
2: and didn't leave very long ago, and yet they've done, obviously, a huge amount of self-reflection. Massive. um, At the same time, it's continuing to parent seven kids, which is massive, and Mm -hmm. trying to coach their children through those significant changes as well oh my
1: gosh and, yeah. and the trauma the kids have experienced yeah. themselves yeah. Yes. huge job seven kids seven mm. different lots of trauma a Look, huge job you know this is it you're dealing with a lot of individual people and there's mm. no one in a family that you can just go oh your life inside did, it didn't impact you it, it did mm. and it will continue to but they recognise by getting out early mm. you know and we've spoken a lot about this mm. boy I mean if you've still got kids in there who are 12 and older some it's, um, it's 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 you know difficult. There's some difficult years mm. ahead to navigate. Um, mm-hmm. Kids coming out even in, in those teens. I think you just even think about something simple like the woefully deficient education that is usually received in, in high control groups. Of course, everyone inside those groups thinks it's wonderful and amazing, and because they've got. Like I say, they're living inside a cardboard box with no perspective on the world. But they've been told it's amazing and great. Um, And so, you you know, you really are not setting kids up well for their life in that group or out. And that's something that really disturbs me. Like, a place that some of these groups could technically function. Like, look how clever they Mm. are. Look how clever. Imagine a victory and hopeful... Hopeful was just tapped on the shoulder and told to go into school. But imagine if someone like Hopeful, what he was amazingly gifted at was encouraged Mm. and he was, you know, fed that and he was sent on a journey of becoming the best of that for the benefit of the community. Like, Mm. you would have a better community, better businesses, better management. Uh, But no, they can't run the risk of too many ideas from the outside coming in.
0: You want little robots,
2: much safer. Just do what you're told. Yeah, yeah, controlling people's... Controlling people's education is is a massive way of retaining control over individuals and keeping them
0: fitting your little box. And and information, as we've mentioned before, and and how much of this couple's Personal journey has mm. got to do with the fact that they had an opportunity to get in outside information when um, Victory because started. Because they were teachers, yes. Because yes. Victory had yeah. to go and get qualified. Yeah, you know, like yeah. How, yeah. how how much how just dis- <laughs> she said they didn't mean to be disruptive. Yeah. in asking questions, <laughs> no. but yeah. that was the outcome.
1: But you know, they were in a position. I think, with especially hopeful. He thought he was in a position he could ask questions. Oh, I tell you, you all think you can ask questions <laughs> until you ask, until them. you ask, them. <laughs> and then you find it, and that's yeah. that. Why are they on the outside now? Why aren't they still the loyal members in? Oh, they asked some questions. questions. And when you're gutsy enough to stand up in the public sphere and ask the hard questions and Mm. not accept the rubbish, you too will find yourself living next door to us. (laughs) We talked about having that relationship with the
0: principal and then he started to ask the wrong questions and that was the end of their their Mm. friendship. Stopped.
2: And I think going back to kids, I think the kids grow up in an environment knowing there are some questions you shouldn't ask, mm. and and that whole side of things is, is squashed out of you
1: too.
0: Yeah. It's, mm. Yeah. Don't I, ask
1: why do we do things up. like this. Yeah. it's not a question. Yeah. Anyways. Don't ask that.
0: Yeah. So we haven't talked about the emotional. Um Landscape, really, that, that mm. these these two, as children, and presumably many of the children who are currently there in in uh, Glory vale, um were living under. And what I heard, the two words I heard repeatedly were shame and fear. Yeah, shame, fear, shame, yep. fear. Read, totally agree. Read
1: any book mm. from any
0: survivor. What yeah. is
1: mm.
0: but repeated to me? It's 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 like. It's not just something that's in the air, it's the food that you're eating, it's Mm. the water that you're swimming in.
1: And you don't realise it at the time. And you don't
0: realise it. Mm. I've got people
1: in there at the moment having some connection, they absolutely scoff at the idea that we keep bringing up about this fear thing. Mm. They cannot see it, they can't see the impact it's had on them, they can't even see how it's still (sighs) impacting them. And, and Victory and Hopeful linked it to the concept of, I don't, I don't know if it's a
2: phrase that they use in there, but something being fatal, and, and it was referring to, That's again, not, not just to a physical death thing, but uh, it's referring to that deep, profound terror that mm. it's, it's not fatal necessarily just in a physical sense, but fatal to you socially and uh, relationally, and that sort of thing, eh? which I totally get because um, I think another key thing that happens to um, SGA's or multiple-generation adults when they leave these groups is um, most of these groups practice some form of shunning mm-hmm. and, and very strong inside outside of boundaries. And actually, um, I mean, I read a research article from a former Jehovah's Witness and, and they specifically said To to be shunned is to endure a form of social death. Mm. And I thought that was a really helpful phrase because that is what it's like. It feels like a death. Human beings are Mm. wired for connection. We're wired social. We're wired to be part of a tribe and people who care for us to, and to have the human unit. secure attachments and yet some groups that practice shunning completely dis- disconnect you as a human being from all those previous forms of so- social relationship that you had mm. and basically overnight mm-hmm. you lose mm-hmm. Your your family, your friends, your whole community that you knew that Mm -hmm. that is no mere thing. That is psychologically
0: devastating. There's been plenty of studies on that. You know, like animal studies with monkeys, the the the, the child, the baby monkey that's not given any love, and the real life, unfortunate real life um, studies on uh, retrospective studies on Mm. the Romanian babies Mm. who were given all their basic physical needs needs Mm. met, but no nurture, no touch, Mm. and they Um, died.
1: And, well they didn't bu- all die they didn't died. all die, but
0: they grew up to be profoundly damaged adults yes. mm. you
1: know yeah. like because there's an impact on their brain mm. and um i just never forget the um, study done on men sitting on death row. They did brain scans of murderers, em- dissections in the frontal lobe. Empathy center literally so they were profoundly undeveloped damaged people. brain mm
2: hmm yep. mm. yep.
1: Yeah, that's what happens when this, uh, this emotional stuff, and you live in fear, you think about the impacts on your physical health, mm. yeah, hypervigilance, your adrenaline, you think of all of those physiological responses when there's a little bit of fear. I know, if you you you've got cortisol running, got cortisol running cortisol. through your
0: system constantly, have we mentioned the ACE studies? No, On this, this, if you guys heard of the A studies, adverse mm-hmm. childhood uh, oh, experience, experience. Yes. studies, they first came to light uh, in the late mid mid to late eighties. Mm-hmm. That children who grew up, or rather, adults who had. Um, uh, a higher collection of a bunch of, they, they, they listed about 10 different um, adverse childhood experiences. Like, uh, uh, they didn't mention cults in there, by the way, because <laughs> they, they probably weren't studying them at the time. But things like a parent with an addiction, um, a mm. mother who was being beaten up, um, neglect. Oh. um uh, alcohol addiction, or did I mention mm. that already? Mental
1: illness. That forms part of part Pri- four. A prisoned parents. I've got them listed. You've got them. For okay, we'll four. go there. We'll yes, go there. It's from but the a- studies. But the, the,
0: exactly. The point of the ACE studies is it showed that there is a. A physiological, biological change that happens in children who go through uh, stress, trauma, fear, shame—all this stuff, psychological distress—and mm-hmm. they're exposed to it from a very younger. The, the younger, the worst. Mm-hmm. So all this nonsense about you know, like oh, well they—they're not conscious of what's going on around them, so you know they won't be harmed. You know that's nonsense. The younger, the worse. Mm. Um, uh, that they—that it leads to actual, measurable objective uh, increase in serious uh, organic disease like cancer, heart disease, uh, inflammatory uh, diseases, you know, obviously mental illnesses as well. Mm. But, like, it actually changes the wiring physiologically Mm. when you've got cortisol rushing through your body mm. all the time and you
1: can't have a break. And then add to that the physical work that you might be doing in a high-demand, Group the lack of sleep, so then yeah. so you've got those things. Then you've got the extra things, laid and then you don't go to the doctor because it shows lack of faith. Absolutely, Whew. yeah, the medical neglect as well. Yes,
0: yeah. Mm. So
1: compounding. So I think that's the point we make about kids and cults. There is a pervasive compounding impact on the things. life yeah. of a child, yeah. and hopefully, at some yeah.
0: point, we're going to do a, an episode on the medical uh, and psychiatric com- consequences of mm. um, growing up and a cult. then.
1: We could have a good, a feel-good episode that you can reverse the damage done to a certain extent so that your life, you don't have to pass all of that on to your children who keep them going in a generational mm-hmm. fashion. Mm-hmm. There, there are ways, and you know, you know who's doing that kind of work? The kind of victory and hopefuls, you mm. know, the guys who are facing up to it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
1: They're changing things. Amazing, isn't it? I think something that I, we need to talk about is the group mentality is assumed as the normal view, and that that's good and right and healthy, and they, they truly, honestly believe that that is the most God-honouring way. And yet, how can it have such a devastating impact on an individual and think that God thinks that's okay? Mm. I find that disconnect mm. disturbing.
2: I, I wanted to um, briefly also throw in there around... Um, that the how overwhelming it is when you leave and that yeah it's like it's like there's just I don't know there's so many stages to the journey of someone who's grown up in one of these groups and then when you leave because you've got um yeah you've got not only the past stuff to deal with Mm -hmm. and to try and process and, and move through but you've often it's it's just a whole new world that you're trying to navigate you're like a refugee in your own country um and I recently read a fascinating article on institutionalisation, which is, of course, a term that's used to describe people who become reliant on prison structures. Or hospitals. Right, OK. Yeah, which, of course, particularly in, the, the, um, in prisons, it's a very high-control environment where autonomy, personal autonomy is reduced, and, um, yeah, you can easily become overly reliant mm-hmm. on the systems and the structures mm-hmm. and the decisions being made for you. Um, in this article quoted, read from the Shawshank Redemption, such a uh-huh. powerful movie. My yeah. movie. Um, mm. And he said, these wolves are funny. He's talking about The prison wolves, obviously. These wolves are funny. First you hate them, and then you get used to them. And after long enough, you get so that you depend on them. Mm. And I was like, that is such a powerful example of exactly what Mm. happens in people who are born and raised in high control groups. A wall in your mind. Yeah, there are times you hate them, but you get used to them. That's what you know. And the amount of people who leave and who really struggle. And I, I remember writing a poem saying and it was about freedom and it said um, it said I'm free and um, the sky is blue but it's really cold cuz i just I was at that point in time i was so overwhelmed by the freedom that it felt yeah it was frightening it was it was the expanse was frightening and 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 you'd sort of flip flop because, mm-hmm. on the other hand, I describe myself at points as being like a kid in a candy store. Yes, I was so excited. I just wanted to try everything. You know, I'd sign <laughs> up to go and watch a rugby game, and I'd go to the movies, and I wanted to do wanted to do everything. And yet and then there were other times when I was just so frightened that, and I couldn't work out what to do. And and as as, mm. as they going to be a god out there who's going to smite me for going to the movies or all, all those kinds of things. But yeah, a I, lightning and strike. In Shawshank <laughs> Redemption, you saw it as well when um, he there was a. The man who eventually took his life, the old guy, I can't remember, but he got released when he was really old. And it's just so cruel, such a sad scene. This very old man leaves because mm. um, he gets finally he deserves his time. And then he ends up taking his life because he just says he, he can't live out here. Mm. And there's another interesting thing, which I don't know if either of you have seen this or if there's any literature about it, but um, there are situations quite a number of times when people in their old age who are former members of groups Go back in the old age. We have it with ex-exclusive oh. brethren quite a few times, and I think I obviously haven't chatted to them because then they won't talk to you anymore. But I think they get elderly. Mm-hmm. They get um. Some sometimes they get lonely, especially if all of their family members biologically mm-hmm. are still in the group. Yep. and um, they just and and they go back because it's what they knew for all their
0: formative years. And they might not, and think, it feels safe. And they've got maybe not many years left, and they think, yeah, well, it what, feels does safe. it matter now. Yeah, mm. the
2: compromise. Yeah, of, um, even if I don't really believe in all this stuff, I'll, I'll go and back. And because wow. connected. It's what I know.
1: That's kind of devastating in a way mm. but I think the good and hopeful uh, approach is that most people who leave will never go back because they're going to develop for themselves a better life and they have a healthier life yeah. and that's what we work to, that actually you can come out of these groups. So I guess we're reflecting on them. We're really grateful to Hopeful and Victory. Thank you for sharing with us. Um, I'm sure you've provoked some strong emotions in our listeners you have with us Um, for any of those who've been through childhood traumas or um, maybe you're reflecting on things that have happened and how it's impacting your parenting we'd really encourage you to um, seek help and support, there are books there's Mm. therapy, there's a lot of um, information you can get for yourself even Mm. on the internet and, and um, so
0: I can recommend this oh, book here, um, "Parenting from the Inside Out" by Daniel Siegel. It's a good kind of way of looking at your childhood as it pertains to your your parenting now and how you can um, avoid um, repeating the same habits. And that's not reflection. only for people who have left culty groups. It's oh just no, that's a for anyone. That's a just a general book. general looking back on mm. your childhood trauma and how your parenting now might be triggering some mm, of that stuff that you yet to case. uncover. Yeah, "Parenting from the Inside Out" Daniel Siegel. Mm.
1: Fantastic. Well, to continue our theme of kids and cults, we have our fourth part of the session and we're going to be talking about safeguarding children. How can we make sure the groups they're part of are safe from harm and then there are protections in place for them? So we hope there's been something in today's episode that's got you thinking, something that might help cult-proof your life. Don't forget to watch us on our Cult Chat YouTube channel. Follow along on the various platforms of the podcast and tell your friends to start listening in. We're sure that there's something in all of this for a wide variety of people in New Zealand. You can find additional information
0: about this episode in the show notes and further information on our Facebook page, Cult Chat. We'd love you to um, join in with that and give us some of your thoughts and ideas. Um, any links or books we've mentioned in this episode will be in the show notes. And thank you to all the support we've been getting from everyone so far. We are in loving our cult chat community and we love the fact that you're helping us to spread our message further throughout the Cultiverse. See you next time. Bye bye. Kakite ano.
2: If anything in today's episode was difficult or upsetting for you, and you would like to talk to somebody, we encourage our New Zealand listeners to free call or text 1737 for support from a trained counsellor. Or you might like to visit the resources section of the Olive Leaf Network website, where you can find a range of organisations and resources that might be able to support you. We would also like to remind you that the views and thoughts and opinions that have been expressed in this programme are the speakers alone and Cult Chat does not necessarily endorse or share them.